Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high rise or low rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. This episode you're about to listen to has a few choice words. So if you're listening with your children in the car, earmuffs. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode entitled Your PCOS. Today we are going to talk about your period and all the irregularities that come along with that. To make sure that we are staying within our scope of practice, we brought on a fabulous dietitian that specializes in PCOS. She's going to dive into this topic more deeply in our interview, but first we're going to give you a little bit of a background and education on what we're going to talk about today. We also wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, a lot of these struggles are outside of our control. And since this podcast is dedicated to our genes with a G, we are going to talk about a disorder that is mostly driven by our genetics. Paired with that, we also found that we have to accept our genes with a J, despite the cultural stigmas that say otherwise. If you struggle with PCOS, you may find that most healthcare providers are encouraging you to change your body and shift your genes with a J. Well, we are here to give you some education so you can understand and believe that you have another option. Let's go into the education first. All right, first, I feel like I'm in fifth grade again. What is a period? Yeah, let's chat the cycle. And we're not going to go back that far where we're sitting in fifth grade class talking about penis and vaginas. We won't do it. But can't believe you just said those words, but okay. (laughs) I'm joking. I can't believe you just said those words. (laughs) I did. I said penis and vagina. Um, We're going to give you a brief definition of the following and chat briefly on our period. So I literally got these definitions from a kid's health website so that it can be really simplistic. A period happens because hormones are changing in the body. The ovaries are releasing two hormones, estrogen and progesterone, and these two hormones cause the lining of our uterus to thicken up. This thickening is so that the fertilized egg can attach to the uterine lining. If the egg is not fertilized, then the lining starts to break down and bleeds, and that repeats every month because it usually takes around a month for this lining to build up and break down. Rachel, tell us about ovulation. Mm. Ovulation is the release of an egg from the ovaries. So the two hormones, estrogen and progesterone, also signal the ovaries to release an egg. The egg will then travel through the fallopian tubes to the uterus. If the egg is then fertilized by the sperm, then it can attach to the uterine wall and become a baby. If If it is not fertilized, then it will begin the process that we just stated of the lining breaking down and bleeding. Do you feel super educated now, mamas? Yes. Okay. Second, what, or our second question is what makes a period irregular? All right. So first, For most of us, on our journey to become a mom, our period went from being an inconvenience to suddenly the most important thing in our lives because without understanding it, no pregnancy would occur to make us a mom. So I know the period discussions, the irregularities, the tears over infertility, and all of that became so much more discussed, even if some of it was hush-hush, 
in my mama groups as we all began to get pregnant and navigate this process. So the big medical question is, what hormones can be irregular that impact your period? So as stated above, the two hormones that regulate your period are estrogen and progesterone. These hormones have the possibility to become irregular, which could result in having irregular periods. There are also other reasons, such as PCOS, which we will be discussing in today's episode, thyroid disorder, cervical or uterine cancer, endometriosis, or pelvic inflammatory disease, just to name a few. And third, we wanted to touch on how insulin works in our bodies because this is going to be discussed in our interview today with Julie. So insulin is a hormone produced by the pancreas to help convert our blood sugar into energy. It also assists your body to store blood sugar in your muscles, liver, and fat cells so that it can be used later when your body needs it. So when you eat, your blood sugar rises. This rise triggers your pancreas to release insulin. The insulin then travels into your bloodstreams to the cells. So the insulin is a key to the cell to actually, quote unquote, open its door and let the blood sugar in. Once inside the cell, the blood sugar can be converted into energy or stored for later use. Someone that has insulin resistance does not have the correct key to let the blood sugar into the cell or has about 100 keys to try before the cell door can open. Instead, the insulin and blood sugar will sit in your bloodstream instead of entering into the cell. So with all that being said, we know that a lot of people struggle with the irregularity of certain hormones, period irregularities, and weight influence with the diagnosis of PCOS. We felt it was important to dedicate this episode to this disorder so that mamas can get a bit more education. If you are experiencing some of these symptoms, then we encourage you to take the self-care, reach out to a healthcare provider, and get checked. If we can help at least one of you learn a bit more about this, then we are doing something right. Now, on to our interview. All right, today we are welcoming Julie Duffy Dillon to our podcast to talk to us about PCOS. She is a registered dietitian, eating disorder specialist, and food behavior expert, partnering with people on their food peace journey. She is trained as a mental health counselor and supervises dietitians and hosts the weekly podcast, Love Food. She has been helping people fight diet culture in her Greensboro, North Carolina private practice since 2005. And you can learn more about her at juliedillonrd.com. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks. Welcome. I'm so excited to be chatting with you all. Yay. We're excited (laughs) to have you. Uh, So we're going to jump right in and want you to tell us a little bit more about what you do. And that wasn't included in that great intro. Okay. So I am um, a dietitian that I refer to myself as a fat positive dietitian. So I help people using only weight inclusive practices. And I came to that kind of um, way of connecting to people around 2002, 2004, somewhere in there. Um, And I have... um, I'm also a mom of two kids. So I'm the primary caregiver. And also I have this other baby, my business. And um, part of that is um, working with people one-on-one. That's always been a big part of it. But then also training other dietitians and people in my community who are healthcare providers like physicians or PAs or therapists, how to move from a weight-centric way of Um, helping people to um, a more fat positive way of helping people, which is super exciting for me to see in my community. And um, 
and yeah, so I also have um, part of my work is is my podcast, Love Food, which is super fun. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk, especially about PCOS. You know, that's a big part of the clients. A big portion of the clients I work with have PCOS. And when I was finishing up my master's in counseling, I basically came to this place of like, I didn't want to really work with medical conditions anymore outside of eating disorders or food behavior. But then people with PCOS just kind of kept finding me because I was working with so many people with eating disorders and so many people with PCOS have an eating disorder. So um, it got me really interested in how to help. It was a challenge for sure because um, just lose weight or just cut out whatever is basically the way that PCOS is treated still today. And so um, I've been seeking for the last 15 years, a better way to treat people with PCOS that does not include diets. Yes. So, I mean, that kind of flows into that one question of like, what got you into PCOS? But it looks like Mm -hmm. PCOS kind of just found you. Mm -hmm. It was like tap, tap, tap (laughs) on my shoulder. And I, yeah, I hear that from a lot of people who specialize in PCOS. And, and honestly, if someone's listening and is a healthcare provider and they're like, well, I want to specialize in PCOS. Welcome. There is definitely not enough people who specialize in it. And when I meet a client with PCOS and I'll ask, well, how'd you find me? And they'll say like, I didn't even know that you could find a provider that specialized in it. That's how like little their provider even told them about the condition. They didn't know it had any depth to it, but they also knew they felt like crap. So um, when they Googled, you know, the town they live in and, and PCOS nutrition, they found me. And, and um, so, yeah, if, if you're listening and kind of interested in it as we talk, then I would encourage you to also specialize in it because people with PCOS need, uh, especially weight inclusive providers. Yes. Yes. Well, can you tell our listeners a little bit about PCOS if they, you know, I'm sure there's many that don't know what that is. And then also like the signs, symptoms, and hormones that would be affected in your body. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I would be happy to. And there's going to be someone listening who doesn't have PCOS, but after this conversation, they're going to go to their doctor and find out they have it because that's what always ends up happening. That is our Um, goal. I'm happy you brought that up because that was really one of our goals of this, of like, we feel like we need to talk about it because there's individuals that may be undiagnosed, just normalizing symptoms that they're experiencing or having these symptoms being brushed off um, or it just being focused on the weight. Well, you're feeling this way because of your weight. And no, we we really want to smack that down and, and <laughs> yeah, have it debunked. It, so yeah, exactly. There's so many people with PCOS that think that they have no like self-control yes. or they just... Um, especially with cravings and things like that. So I'm really excited to go through it. But um, PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome is an endocrine disorder that starts in the hypothalamus. And it's basically a diagnosis of exclusion, which makes it hard. You know, if we have strep throat and go to the doctor, they test you and it's like, yes, you have strep throat. Here's your medicine. <laughs> so PCOS diagnosis is not as clear cut. It's a, they have to exclude all these other things before you can actually get the diagnosis of PCOS. And then it still has some, some ambiguity. and um, a way to kind of think about it is a set of symptoms that result from a hormonal imbalance. And technically in order at this point for someone to get diagnosed with it, they um, need to have two of three criteria that are called the Rotterdam criteria. And the one of them is that they need to have something funky going on with their periods, whether they're not having a period or they're irregular or they're really heavy or painful. You know, um, 
it's just basically something funky going on with that. And then the second criteria is some kind of sign, either clinically or just through observation of hyperandrogenism, which I always stumble over that word, but basically it's um, uh, a sign either through a lab test or through um, observation of high testosterone, testosterone or other androgens. And for some people with PCOS, what it ends up looking like is more hair on their face or alopecia, you know, losing hair on their head. Um, so that's the second one. And the third one is these polycystic, and we put in quotes, cystic ovaries. Um, and, you know, so remember you need two of three. So someone could have polycystic ovarian sy syndrome, but not have polycystic ovaries, mm. which I think is really mm -hmm. funny. Yeah. It's like almost like a good trivial pursuit question. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and they're not cysts anyway. They're just immature follicles mm. that just never, like when, um, when a person's going through their cycle of her ovulation, there's lots of follicles that will start to form and then one becomes dominant. And when someone has PCOS and there's something going on with their their ovaries, um, then there's just not one that becomes a dominant follicle. So there ends up being lots of immature follicles and um, that causes that ring of pearl-like kind of uh, thing. I don't know. Can you tell I don't do any kind of like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so anyway, yeah. So eventually, we think that they're going to change the name of PCOS. Mm, yeah, but that, right now that's that just what would make sense. Yeah, yeah. So and interesting. Yeah, um, but yeah. One of the things that I would also say about it is it is um, something that can feel a certain way. Like one of the signs for PCOS is um, lots of fatigue, also like really painful menstrual cycles. There's also um, depression, anxiety, or other kind of mood disorders that are really common with it too. And um, eating disorders are also really common with it. So if anyone listening kind of is like, ooh, I kind of have all those things, but I don't know about the hyperandrogenism or the cystic ovaries, it'd be, it's not a, like an expensive thing to kind of look into. And it may actually help you understand your body more if you do have it, mm -hmm. just to rule it out. So, yeah. And what kind, of, that helps. what kind of provider would someone go to in order to seek more information or a diagnosis? So, you know, a, a really good internal medicine doctor, when I say good, I mean, just like, up to date on um, what even PCOS is would be like fine, but most OBGYNs know about it already because um, of the ovaries. You know, they already know what it is. They know how to diagnose it. I can't say that every provider is going to be helpful because of um, like weight centric care. So sometimes I can get in the way of it. So if someone is not in a larger body and is thinking they may have PCOS, sometimes people won't want to test them because they're not in a larger body. Um, so yeah, but yeah, typically it's the OBGYN that will, will be the one testing it, sometimes an endocrinologist too. Yeah. If, if people are questioning these terminologies like the weight-centric or weight-inclusive, I think going back to our that one episode on your weight, uh, which we define all of these terms and go really into depth on that, um, but we are looking for weight-inclusive providers, which are providers that do not focus and blame everything on our Wait, and actually yeah focus great on the core. resource i don't know if you all ever mentioned this resource but mm -hmm. um fat, fatfriendlydocs.com oh no that's a, that's a, always like you can just see if it, it, there's someone near you maybe that is on there that's a good t place to start awesome include every city but you know it's a, it's a i good love thing it thank you yeah. yeah we will link that for sure so since Tina and I both specialize in treating eating disorders, we both commonly find that many individuals will either not have their period or have irregular periods. And a lot of this is a result of malnourishment or just a bigger issue. 
So most of these issues, we find healthcare providers just prescribing birth control to either force a period or just brush it off as them being an athlete or that irregular periods are normal. So we're wondering if you can speak to any of that, because why would it not be recommended or is it recommended to force a period for someone that's not getting one? I totally feel your pain and how frustrating it can be when birth control is just used to get a period without any further kind of study or reasoning besides like, let's just make sure you have a period. And um, before people are diagnosed with PCOS, it can be a part of way to figure out if that's what's going on or if it's malnutrition. Um, and, you know, if, if a person is um, eating more appropriately and their body is recovering in the way that they need to, um, yeah, if the period eventually comes back, it's a way to know, okay, maybe it's not PCOS or maybe you're not meeting that criteria. But for people with PCOS who have very heavy periods or no periods, um, one of the things that long-term that can happen where birth control can be helpful is that they are at higher risk for endometrial cancer because they're the lining, like unlike people who are malnourished and not having a period, you know, those are people whose lining is not building up because there's the, of the malnourishment, it's like, there's no lining to like get rid of. So, and I, I can remember when I first started working with eating disorders, the, the reasons why doctors would say they wanted to put people on birth control is because of the risk of endometrial cancer. But now we know, no, that if someone is malnourished, their lining's not actually even building up. But for someone with PCOS, their lining is building up. And so um, if they're not getting a period, that may be a reason why to go on birth control to help just have a, like a regular kind of release of all that. Or someone may have really heavy, painful, uncomfortable periods. So I fully support that too. I'm like, you want to probably be able to go to work or school or just like leave the house. Um, and then also people want to use it for birth control. I'm like... You, yeah, use it for birth control. Um, but there is a, a, a side kind of bar with that is some researchers starting to point to um, birth control may promote higher insulin levels over time for people with PCOS. And we haven't talked about it yet, but high circulating insulin is common for most people with PCOS. So if they're also on birth control, it may make the insulin side of things worse. And um, so that stinks, you know? And so there are things we can do nutritionally and with supplements and things like that to better, to improve egg quality and thus um, improve ovulation and cycle kind of length and things like that. So if someone doesn't need it for those reasons we talked about earlier, um, and they have access to all this, these different options and time, then that may be a way to, to do it instead. I think too, because our audience is moms, a lot of people are now out of the phase of using birth control because, you know, we're either trying to get pregnant or we've just put so much through our bodies. We're trying to figure out a more natural way to manage yeah. things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if you're in that space, there's definitely things you can do um, to help manage the period side of things with PCOS. You know, one thing in particular is the supplement inositol. And um, inositol is a type of B vitamin. It's a, a secondary messenger that is um, a part of how the body uses insulin. And, you know, if you think about insulin being the doorman to the cell, um, and if, a, if the door jam kind of gets stuck, those of us without PCOS, the body sends these secondary messengers over to be like WD-40 to the door, like open it up. And with PCOS, some of the theories are is that there may be a defect or a deficiency with these inositols. Yeah. So the body just sends out more insulin and more insulin and more blood sugar and, um, or more glucose. And so um, by supplementing the inositols, what we're finding is it lowers insulin levels, it lowers testosterone, it improves egg quality. 
And um, so it's, it's helping a lot of people with PCOS. It's helping their fertility. So um, yeah, it's a really, a really good one to check out if you haven't checked it out yet. And is that, can, can individuals find that over the counter? Does it need to be managed by a dietitian or a doctor or can you speak to that? Yeah. You know, there's, um, I think it's always helpful to talk to your healthcare provider before you start anything, especially when it comes to fertility. Um, Mm -hmm. I went through years of infertility and, um, I can appreciate the urgency of like, I don't know. I remember just like living 40, um, what is it? 40 weeks from now? No. How long are you pregnant? Yeah. 40 weeks. (laughs) 42 for me. Yeah. Oh, 42. But, uh, anyway, yeah. So I can appreciate the urgency of just wanting to start something, but yeah, getting clearance from a healthcare provider is good. But, um, inositol is something that's becoming really popular. So I'm finding it in places like target now. Um, and so it's easier to get, and there's a, there's a, um, blog post that we've written that's really handy. If you want to know more about inositol, if you just go to juliedillonrd.com slash inositol, you can get to it. So I'll, I'll send you that link if you want. Awesome. Yeah. We'll link that in yeah. the notes there. And can you speak to a little bit more because you had like kind of graced over it and I'm like, ooh, ears <laughs> perking up a little bit more for our listeners about strategies around nutrition or you were saying supplements you just kind of hit on that mm-hmm. for their individuals with PCOS. Yeah, so I know traditionally people with PCOS are told that they should cut out carbs and sugar, um they should um eat less, exercise more. And what I find is that kind of way of treating it doesn't work long term and the research also there's no evidence that long-term that helps either. If anything, it's pointing to that, that just makes things worse. And so the first thing that I want my clients with PCOS to really make sure that they're doing is making sure they're eating enough. I think so many people think they don't need that much food. um, And they've also been told to eat so little. And even though people will come to me knowing that I only do intuitive eating work, I don't do diets or anything, but they still have this kind of belief that they need to be like eating less. And they're like, mm. well, obviously I need to eat less. I'm like, obviously no. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and to a certain degree, they say that all eating disorders or disordered eating are restrictive disorders. Yeah, I agree. You know? Yeah. And I, you're probably going, you know, your, your issues are probably from restriction. Yeah. Or a subtle yeah. restriction, not from eating too mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Right. And, you know, from a P2S perspective, like thinking of the physiology, you know, I didn't really go into this part, but like. Um, there's a couple things to keep in mind with PCOS, the hormonal imbalance that's um, chronically occurring and, and it's going to be there. Like there's no cure for it. So it's a chronic condition that's always getting worse. And what researchers have found is that it's connected to a pro-inflammatory state and that word in inflammation and inflammatory, it's super trendy. So, you know, there's, I don't know. I always feel like let's just kind well, of. I'm sure there's an elimination diet for that, right? I'm I know. sure I'm like, there please, is. People, I'm, I, I feel like anti-inflammatory and elimination diets, but not for weight loss, but for in- inflammatory, is just the most misconstrued terminology. In it my is mind. totally, totally BS. And here's the thing about inflammation, and I mean this goes without PCOS too, but. Um, yeah, like when you eat certain things, it may make it more inflammatory, or whatever, but actually anything we eat is inflammatory. I mean, breathing totally. oxygen is inflammatory and <laughs> worse than all of that is dieting, especially long-term mm-hmm. dieting. So long-term dieting with PCOS, what it, it's been connected to is depleting, um, a certain omega threes that the body needs to have in order to promote the oxidation inflammation cycle to like help smooth out all those rust spots that happens from oxidation. 
And so people with PCOS, because they're already in this kind of chronic pro-inflammatory state because there's just so much hormonal imbalance, then if you put chronic dieting on top of it, um, especially cutting out carbs and sugar, there seems to be that like that just enhances that even more. So people with PCOS end up becoming really um, deficient in DHA in particular with omega-3. And that leads to like feeling just so sluggish. Like um, I have, I remember one person told me it was like, you ever pick up like a microwave? <laughs> you know how like a microwave feels when you pick it up? It's like, it's, it's not really that heavy. <laughs> no, yeah, no, pick I've one. never picked up a microwave. Pick up a microwave. In the wall. <laughs> okay. Go to Target or Walmart okay. and pick up a box that's a microwave. So they're not really big. And at first you're like, oh, they're not that heavy. But there's like this weird central area of it that's really heavy. And so it's oh, awkward yeah. and you're like, oh. And so that's what people have told me it's like to have PCOS, like that feeling in the body when the body is just so inflamed and um, depleted from that chronic um, dieting. And so that's part of it, that pro-inflammatory state. And then the other side that we haven't talked about that's really important moving forward, like what do we do is um, more on that insulin part. So um, 75, to, I think it's 75 to 95% of people with PCOS have high insulin levels. And what this means then um, is that with with extra insulin in there, remember like the doorman opening the cell, I was telling kind of about that earlier. Um, the body is just not able to get energy because the the door is stuck. And so the body just releases more insulin and more and more and more. So this also makes that pro-inflammatory state like even more chaotic. And if you couple that with, let me cut out carbohydrates and sugar, like the one thing that the body craves during a high insulin state, you know, like that's the one thing the body is wanting. And it's not because the person is has no control, but it's because like the cells of the body need glucose. Like there's, it's a primal thing. It's not, oh, I just have a weakness for chocolate or I have a sweet tooth. That's what so many people tell me. They're like, I have a sweet tooth. And then I'm like, well, tell me what it's like, you know, when you're craving whatever, like, and it, it's a, it's a primal thing. If you can almost um, think about people who are like drowning um, and then they finally get to the, t the surface and they're breathing, they're like gasping for air. And it's not that they're obsessed with oxygen, you know, they just haven't had enough. They just need it. Yeah. Yeah. And so oh someone God. with PCOS, it's the same thing. Like when they have high circulating insulin and this pro-inflammatory state together, if you um, take away carbs and sugar without treating those things, it will make them feel like they're gasping for air, but they're not allowed to have any, you know? Yeah. I think commonly as a dietitian working with individuals, that have PCOS, that is the common myth that I get where it's like, oh, my doctor's just telling me to cut out carbs and sugar and that's going to resolve it or else I'm going to get type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Well, so there's a statistic that 40% of people with PCOS will get prediabetes by the time they're 40. So, mm -hmm. you know, part of what you just need to keep in mind is again, PCOS is a chronic condition. It's always going to get worse. Even if you like robotically did exactly what you're supposed to do, there's still a pretty good chance that diabetes is in the future. Like, and diabetes is not a death sentence. This is something that is different. Um, I was a diabetes educator in the beginning of my career. And I can remember like the fear people had when they come in because they got diagnosed with diabetes, but you know, how we um, identify diabetes, how we treat it, all the different medications we have, it's so different than it used to be. And another part of that to keep in mind is that I've read about how it's only like three to 5% of people with prediabetes end up getting diabetes. 
So it's not like everybody with prediabetes gets diabetes. Right. And I think like speaking to the nature of our podcast, like, look, individuals that were diagnosed with PCOS, this is not something that you did. No. It's not something oh, yeah. that like, no, no, no. hey, wait, I ate too many carbs. So therefore now I have PCOS no, or no. diabetes. It's like, guys, this is genetics. Yeah. This is, totally. this is in your genetic makeup yeah. that this is how your body's designed. And I understand that it may be frustrating that it's a chronic condition, but there are ways to work through it in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because the number one myth out there is that people cause um, diabetes and PCOS, but they cause PCOS. And that's not true. It's definitely passed down through families. There's some environmental connections to it, which is, looks like more like traumas and um, environmental kind of changes and just how we like how agriculture is. And, and then also like access to healthcare. Like those are all things that may affect a person's um, experience with PCOS, but yeah, it's definitely passed down through family. So no one caused it. No one ate something wrong and caused it and no one's weight caused it either. Like that's something else to keep in mind. Um, so, so yeah, like, so we were, what were we talking about? I feel like I totally, um, went on a big circle. You may have to catch me back. <laughs> the diet, the myths to bust. Yeah. Myths, carbohydrates, um, Oh yeah. The carbs uh-huh. and things. Yeah. So that, thank you for bringing me back because yeah, the carbs <laughs> is what everyone thinks that they should be doing. And what I yeah. think of is like, that's really putting the cart before the horse because um, if it, and, and again, like in, if you look at some like research studies, you may find that cutting out carbohydrates and or sugar or whatever popular diet, like keto or something like that, at the six week mark, you know, six week short-term studies on PCOS that looks really favorable and bringing down insulin levels but the quote unquote long-term nutrition studies for PCOS are 12 weeks long, which is really funny. Um, but the attrition rate is already over 50% in those studies um, when you look at especially like keto and things like that. And that's already showing that um, for it's not helping as many people. But what we know for generalizing to like the, uh, the regular population without PCOS or just people in general is that looking two years out, those kinds of things just aren't helping anymore and they're not helping health. So what I do instead, if, you know, if someone's listening, it's like, okay, I have PCOS, what do I do instead instead of cutting out these carbs is, you know, thinking about the pro-inflammatory state and the high insulin levels, let's help you figure out how to bring those things down without necessarily omitting anything. Um, And it may mean, um, well, actually what the first thing I do, like I mentioned earlier was like, let's make sure you're eating enough first and foremost. So that way your body is not depleted. And um, so then you have as much energy. I feel like that's the marker for yeah. so many, like, hey, everyone that's struggling with anything ever, let's just make sure you're yeah. eating enough. It should be the period. first for every Boom. dietitian. Framework <laughs> yeah. for everything. Yes. Let's make sure you're yes. eating enough first. And, and then from there, you know, um, the inositol supplement is another thing that I recommend pretty early on. And especially my clients who are recovering from an eating disorder or trying to move away from dieting, um, I'm like, let's like really lean on the things that don't necessarily have to do with food yet. You know, how can we help you um, lower insulin levels and lower that inflammation and, you know, eating enough, the inositol, helping sleep, helping stress, um, you know, going to therapy is a really important part of recovery for so many people with PCOS. There's um, a... I haven't seen an exact percentage that I can recall off the top of my head, but so many people with PCOS also have a really 
um, strong, deep trauma history. And that's a really interesting kind of connection. And, and someone I'm sure is doing research on like, actually what, how many people or what's the percentage? Is it more than the general population? But um, I wouldn't be surprised if it is. And that's probably part of the environmental connection to it and how trauma is connected to higher insulin levels and higher rates huh. of inflammation, you know, like somehow they're all yep. kind of interwoven in there. But um, so taking care of those things. Um, but then after that, what my clients and I often will do is, is talk about like, okay, people with PCOS probably just need more protein. So where could that fit for you? Let's see if that works for you. Or when I say works, does that help you feel better? Does it help you sleep better? Does it help you just to feel like, you know, you'd feel energized from a meal instead of not energized or satisfied. So yeah. What about adding in, cause you had kind of touched on it, like a omega-3 with a good balance of EPA and DHA since that would be altered. Would mm-hmm. that be an intervention? Yeah. That's another supplement that I often recommend. Um, you know, it's something that, um, you can try to get enough through food, but you probably can't, especially in the beginning stages of trying to recover from all the restriction and the chronic dieting that we see with PCOS. So for at least the first six months, my clients will usually need to supplement their, their, uh, omega-3 and, um, having a, a, an amount of DHA actually listed on there is also important because that's the one you need to make sure that you are getting. Sometimes they don't label that because it's, I think it's kind of expensive to be able to know like what fish, fish you're actually catching and then like making the label. So they don't always put on there if there's actually like a specific amount of EPA and DHA, but yeah, having that on there is also really important. And um, yeah, and then finding um, sources of fat that you actually like to eat, you know, and seeing how that fits in there for you. I think what's interesting for me as the therapist as I'm listening is for someone who is listening to all of this, as fascinating as it is to hear all the science, it's probably overwhelming. They're probably thinking like, she just used a lot of big words. How do I, f- I know we're how do I, out no, but here. listen, how do I find, how do I even find a good DHA? Is that on Amazon? Do I have to go to mother's market? Like it's, it can get very overwhelming. And I think for some people, it feels like it's quote unquote easier for me just to cut out the sugar. Or this is such a Mm. chronic long-term condition for me. And if I can accept this as chronic, okay. But for me, it just feels like it's easier to focus on the short term of let me just cut out something today. Or the kids are screaming in the backseat and I'm listening to this podcast and it sounds amazing, Mm. but unless it's prime delivery on Amazon, I don't know how to order these supplements because I can't even think past the next after today's afternoon, you know? That's so funny. Yeah. I, and I have to say too, I am someone who loved biochemistry so much that I took it twice. <laughs> no. So, I mean, what? Oh my gosh. So I'm, I'm joking. It's because I didn't do oh, it. Okay. I, like, I, like, I remember all my college roommates that were very intelligent oh my- failing that class. <laughs> yeah. Like, no. Oh my God. Well, I, I I did not do well in it. So science is not something that comes naturally to me. So I appreciate you kind of pausing that part because- No, I'm not pausing um, it. What I'm trying to say is I'm I'm having empathy for some of my listeners or some of our moms that are listening to going, wow, this is fascinating. And I truly believe that. And I want to do that, but that's very overwhelming for me. And so a big yeah, piece, I yeah. think, of the body acceptance journey and the self-care journey is going- how do I find the energy to put into a long-term solution of self-care versus this temporary quick fix of the diet? Because that feels quote unquote easier when that's 
what I'm inundated with on a regular basis, when that feels like it's a decision I can make right now at my lunch and what I'm plating. Um, and obviously we know that long-term that doesn't work either. So is I love that you use the word chronic because when I hear chronic condition, I feel like there's a sense of relief that could come of like, this is not something that I'm going to fix right now at this lunch with a, with skipping the sugary item on my plate, right? This is something that is going to take a real dedication to self-care and a real energy towards making sure that I'm loving my body and meeting my body where it's at. And that's going to push me then into a, into the solutions that feel much more long-term or I want to say lifestyle, but then our diet culture stole that word too. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so from a practical level, it's important for me not to like give exact um, supplements out on a podcast just because that's more individual. And so ethically, I just can't do that. But um, one thing I could, I would, I want to mention too, and you know, the three of us, we don't experience PCOS. So like we can kind of like try to picture what it's like, but I don't think we're ever really going to understand it. So I, I um, have been sitting across people with PCOS for about 15 years now. And Um, I really appreciate that that kind of overwhelmed experience that you're describing is basically the norm all the time with or without kids because of the cravings for carbs and sugar, how intense they are, and then how um, chaotic food feels. You know, if we think about a binge restrict cycle, um, that's really normal with PCOS, even if there's not like an eating disorder kind of like uh, way of thinking going on. And um, so something that people have taught me with PCOS is like, yeah, that's like the norm. And so much so that they, that they kind of forget that that's not what everybody else is experiencing. And so if you're thinking like meal to meal, I think it's really important to go back to the basic of like, let me make sure I'm feeding myself enough. I need to make sure, and it doesn't have to be perfect. And honestly, like focusing on like, I need to do this perfectly is not necessary with PCOS. Like just finding a few things that help you feel better and your body will give you the feedback that you need. Like, does this help or not? And that's one of the, I don't want to say gifts because that sounds so cheesy, but like one of the things about PCOS is that your body will let you know pretty quickly if that was a food that felt good or not. Um, Cause it may make you feel sluggish or give you a headache or something like that. And especially with an amount of food too. And so you may find that if you have um, a certain amount of protein, whatever that is for you, that you feel so much better after lunch. And so when your kids go down for a nap, you can actually like watch TV instead of napping too, which that sounds so nice. Uh, (laughs) Um, But yeah. And the other side of it too, is like the chronic kind of like primal cravings that so many people talk about. I mean, it's so primal that I want people to know that like, if, if thinking about the short term of like cutting out sugar again, it probably sounds scary to have to always do that because it feels like every cell in your body is dying if you don't have the carbs and sugar. And what I want you to know is you don't have to do that anymore. And if anything, that's going to make it worse long-term. So focusing on what can I have with this goldfish that my kids are eating right now at lunch? Um, Should I just have a peanut butter sandwich with them? Um, What could I have with it? I don't know what feels good. And just make sure it's enough. I had this really wonderful experience with um, someone many years ago who's given me permission to talk about their experiences with PCOS and infertility. And um, this was someone that was on a really tight budget And they were trying to figure out a way to make their ovulation just better because, again, they were going through infertility. And one of the things that we found was um, chicken nuggets from Walmart. 
like the frozen chicken nuggets, were um, a protein source that tasted really good to this person in the morning. And so, um, and then if they needed something like really quick at lunch or something that was like something they could buy a huge stash of them, it would be the freezer and easy to make. And that was one of the few things that changed before ovulation got back to normal. And this person has two kids now. And so you don't have to like focus on like, I need to make it a perfect thing. It's just like, make sure it's enough. Maybe experiment with some more protein with that meal you're having right now. Cause that may be something that really helps you feel better too. Um, and try to keep all the other noise out because your body's going to lead you where you need to go more than all that other noise. Like that's just I love that noise. practicality because it also goes along with what Tina and I suggest to moms a lot is looking into adding things instead of taking things away. Yes. That is my for sure recommendation for PCOS. Um, you know, I do talk about protein, like adding protein strategically into the day. I'm like, do not take anything away. That would like not only would that make me sad, but it also would make this kind of recommendation not effective in a sense because it would make a person not getting enough. It would um, cut things too low in other areas. So I'm like, if you're eating a bagel for breakfast, like, yeah, what could you add to that? That would be some protein choices to see if that helps um, you to feel better in the mid afternoon. Cause that's basically what that protein would do. So, and we understand anyway. that like people listening, like diet culture is out there and in our face so that noise that Julie is saying like just you know quiet down we recognize the difficulty in doing that and so if we can I don't know listeners if if you can find a resource or a way to add someone into your support team that isn't diet culture that's one step forward and so we're speaking to a privilege here of like maybe being able to add a professional to your team. But even if that isn't it, there may be free resources in your community or adding someone in that isn't infiltrated by cutting out sugar or carbs or crazy diet industry here. I think it's so important to rally with other people who are rejecting diets too. Mm -hmm. I think it's so helpful. I think even from like a dietitian perspective, I think about how that has so much power to like help lower insulin levels and like inflammation markers, because if we're getting support and we're then by that support, we're able to like advocate for ourselves more and then access healthcare more like that. That's all stuff that's going to promote long-term, um, just more like well, 